Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Talking Pharmacy podcast. My name is Richard Thomas, editor of Pharmacy Magazine. Joining me on the pod this week are my CIG editorial colleagues, Rob Daracott, Arthur Walsh, Neil Trainers, Helena Beer, and Monica West. So we have something different for you this week. Most of us are back in our London offices. It's a sunny Friday. The window's open, so you may hear the life-affirming sounds of people enjoying themselves outside in the bars and restaurants of Soho. So we thought we'd put together a spring special. Each of us is going to choose our favourite story of the year so far, or the one which made the greatest impression. So, ladies first, Helena, what was your story of the year so far? Yeah, thanks, Richard. So my story of the year so far was highlighted in TM's feature, The Importance of Immunisations. So we ran this in our January issue and it was published online in mid-January as well. So around the time that the COVID-19 vaccination programme was really getting into its stride. Um, But rather than focusing on COVID vaccination, it actually highlighted the need to encourage people to attend routine vaccinations for things like the six in one, uh, MMR and HPV. Um, So normal health maintenance and health protection are crucial and arguably more so now when there's extra pressures on the immune system due to coronavirus. Um, But things have shifted so much during the pandemic that they've kind of fallen by the wayside, um, as we've seen for other things like cancer diagnoses as well. Um, So official advice from the JCVI um, was that children should continue to receive routine childhood immunisations according to the national schedule throughout the lockdowns, um, so long as they weren't showing signs of COVID-19 infection. Um, But this didn't always happen for a whole host of reasons, such as reduced access to health services like GPs or anxiety over visiting such places due to the virus risk. Um, So whereas the flu vaccination programme has been kind of fully embraced, Um, It reportedly saw its best ever year with over 19 million individuals receiving the NHS flu jab. I think it was four million more than last season. Um, And then many more people getting that vaccination privately. Um, A lot of that kind of increase from last year is due to pharmacy, which is great. And I think another honourable mention for story of the year. Um, But while that's all positive for flu, um, early data from Public Health England suggests that in terms of the primary immunisation schedule, there was a drop in vaccinations during the three lockdown periods. Um, It did recover to an extent in the months in between, but there's an obvious knock-on effect. Um, And I think the picture will become even clearer later in the year when more data has been released and analysed. But then it's not just babies' immunisations. There was also significant disruption with the HPV vaccine, Um, When the first and third lockdowns happened as schools were closed, um, this vaccine is kind of given through schools for the most part. Um, The stats surrounding that are quite concerning with between kind of 20 and 30 percent of young people missing out on the first or second vaccines compared to the previous years. I think the first doses for girls, I think it was less than 60 percent coverage compared to 88 percent the previous year. Um, So during the disruption, first doses were prioritised, but catching up with second doses doses is necessary for full protection um, and delaying the second dose is unlikely to affect the vaccine's effectiveness, um, which are both important messages to convey. Um, Public Health England is stressing that all children who have missed out on their routine vaccinations during the pandemic remain eligible um, and should receive them. And that should be the case for young people and those over 65 as well and uh, for pregnant women as well. Um, Catch-up plans are in place in some cases, but people may fall through the net. 
So the, the main message in the story was that these vaccinations remain vital for stopping the resurgence of infections that have been successfully brought under control through immunisation, um, like measles, for example, um, and getting positive vaccination messages out there, urging people to protect themselves is so important. Um, pharmacy teams are ideally placed to, to reinforce this message alongside all of the um, messages that they're getting out there about COVID vaccinations. Yeah, thanks, Helen. A really, really important story that. Um, and as you say, pharmacy teams have a hugely important role in reinforcing those those immunisation messages. But isn't it worry, isn't it? Another example of how um, health services are being, you know, underutilised or have been badly affected in terms of continuity as a result of COVID. And, you know, the, the concerns are what 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 we're storing up for the future Um as health services slowly return to normal, but immunisation clearly really important, especially for childrens, and we need to get those messages across. In conditions, diseases like measles are already on the rise, and uh, I think that's concerning going forward. Um, so I think that's a really important story, that Helena. Thank you, Monica. Good to have you on the pod, Monica. What was your story of the year so far? Thanks, Richard. In February, I wrote a public eye feature about the abolition of the tampon tax in the UK. Um, The Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, stuck to his promise from his budget in March 2020 and abolished the tax on 1st of January 2021. Now, this was quite an exciting moment for everyone who uses sanitary products in the UK and myself personally, who's been a big advocate of the banning of the tax for years. So the tampon tax was the term given to the 5% VAT charge on sanitary products that also deemed them non-essential luxury items. Just to put this into perspective, at 5% VAT, the average 30-year-old who started menstruating at age 12 will have spent £736.04 on sanitary products, of which £35.05 is VAT, according to a BBC calculator. So the abolition is thought to represent a stand against gender discrimination and basically means that these products are now cheaper and more accessible for consumers in the UK. Um, This is hoped to be especially impactful as according to children's charity Plan International UK's 2017 research report on period poverty and stigma, one in 10 girls in the UK have been unable to afford sanitary products at one time. While the banning of the tax is obviously fantastic news, there's still a really long way to go to end period poverty in the UK, and some of the consequences of the tax remain unclear. For example, it's brought about the end of the Tampon Tax Fund, which was established to donate money to charity and community groups that run services directly benefiting women and girls, and this was equivalent to the amount of VAT revenue collected. Approximately £47 million has been donated. And so there are questions around kind of where that financial support is going to come from in the future. Equally, the tax remains across the rest of the EU. And bear in mind that lowering the tax to 5% is voluntary. That's kind of the lowest. And it actually remains as high as 27% in places like Hungary. However, I thought the abolition of the tax was um, a really, really positive step in the right direction and some 
you know, very positive news that was well needed at the start of the year. And hopefully we can continue on this trajectory. Um, Felicia Willow, Chief Executive of the Gender Equality and Women's Rights Charity, the Fawcett Society, said, It's been a long road to reach this point, but at last the sexist tax that saw sanitary products classed as non-essential luxury items can be consigned to the history books and onwards and upwards, I see. Thank you, Monica. Really, another really important story there. And uh, yeah, that was very well explained. Thank you, Monica. Okay, um, let's go to, well, Neil, let's go to you. What was your story of the year so far? Thanks, Richard. Um, I've gone for Harpreet Chana, who's the uh, founder of the Mental Wealth Academy. Um, I've cheated a little bit with this one because it was just slightly before the pandemic, but uh, I've chosen it really for for two reasons. Um, One, because it was a really... Uh, frank, honest, open, and quite a heart-hitting interview. Uh, one that stuck in my mind. Uh, certainly, the the most heart-hitting one interview I've done it uh, for as long as I can remember. And and the second reason is because it, it, it what we discussed mental health really does resonate even more now, and has resonated over the last year since I did the interview because of the impact of lockdown on on people's mental health. And <clears throat> it's you know it's it's resonated even more. So Harpreet. Um, was very open with um, with her ex- own experience with mental health. Um, she she had a close brush with suicide uh, about four years previously, but she turned her life around to become a coach who specialises in mental health awareness. And she set up the Mental Wealth Academy to help people, uh, you know, talk about you know their their personal problems and mental health. Um, we know that a lot of people don't talk about what they uh, what what they go through day to day. And it was a very as I said, it was a very open interviewing um she at one stage i mean she, it, it really did sort of take sort of hit me you know some of the things she was saying i mean you know, in the early days she she's talking about her personal issues her, her her um one stage she she was um standing on a bridge a railway bridge actually contemplating jumping off the bridge it was it was really heartening stuff um but she she decided to um having sort of found a way out you know she decided to sort of uh become a professional coach who specialises in, in mental in mental health. And um, it, 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 it's an interview that I'll remember for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, it, a lot of people, yes, the industry does have, um, you know, assistance and help for, for, for pharmacists. You know, we do obviously have pharmacist support. I think the Royal Pharmaceutical Society are doing some work in this area as well. But um, it's not always easy to to find, you know, um, guidance and advice and, and support in the industry, and I think that was one of the points that Harpreet made, uh, which also resonated. You know that you know it, it, it's a very labor. It can be a very labyrinthine, very complex area, and it's not easy to sort of know exactly and immediately where to go for for help with, with mental health. And that was primarily one of the reasons why she decided to get in, get in there, and help people, um, uh, and, and sort of you know playing on her own experiences as well. Um, some of the things she said kind of hit me as well. You know, working, she works with different types of organisations within pharmacy, but quite disappointingly, she revealed that some organisations within pharmacy have not been interested in working with her to support her, um, to sort of provide that support with, with mental health. And she didn't say who those organisations were, but that, that was um, something that was disappointing and, and hit me. Um, but yeah, you know, members of the pharmacy team, she said, are in need of mental health support, but often get lost in a dysfunctional system. And I think that's that's very. Uh, I'm not. 
that's necessarily sure that's true now. I don't know, but this was about a year ago, just over a year ago. Things I think have improved. I think the, the pandemic um, has almost forced pharmacy to, to, to almost improve the services it offers. I mean, we know, as I said, pharmacists will do a, have done a, a great deal of good work over the years, have done for a long time. But I think the pandemic has, you know, shunted mental health to the to the forefront even more now. And I think that I think the industry does seem to to you know have more of a there are more avenues I think for people to go to to, to get that support. Um, but she, you know, her own personal experiences prompted her to to want, want to do something about this, and um, and she's done some terrific terrific work, and she continues to do some terrific work. I did ask her if um, at the time if any practicing pharmacists who have contacted her academy are. Have had suicidal thoughts, and she said yes. Um, not many, but the problem, and she said, is that they've the access again. They don't know where to go. They don't know how to channel this. Uh, their their thoughts, their the feelings that 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 they they're consuming them. They don't know where to go. Um, but it did. You know, I was sitting there thinking, wow. You know, I I didn't expect it to say yes. I, I guess you don't really. You expect you know, pharmacists as healthcare professionals are there to help. Other people, they're there to help other people deal with their feelings, but you don't necessarily think that pharmacists themselves are, uh, um, uh, suffer, but they do, of course, they do, they're human beings. So um, a very powerful, very um, strong interview that I that really did resonate, and has, as I said, has, has, has resonated even more so in the last year since we did the interview, because it's it's all about mental health, and she's doing some terrific work. So I, I've gone for Harpreet Chana. Yeah, it was a very, very powerful interview. clearly made a... a quite an impression on you as well, Neil. And I think Harpy speaks very eloquently about the, the mental health crisis, I think, that the pharmacy is facing. And, and stress and burnout is, is becoming a, a, a huge problem for the sector. And I thought what that interview did for me, I think it just highlighted, it was important because it highlighted some of these issues and, and raised awareness of some of the avenues of support that are available. And you're right, Neil, it's not necessarily very easy uh, to get the support and guidance um, for pharmacy team members um, suffering with their mental health it is there but I think we could probably all do more to, to raise awareness of, of where you can get that support um, and I thought that piece uh, was very effective at doing that um, a very powerful interview like I said Neil so thank you for that right let's go to you Arthur uh, what have you got for us Okay, it might be slightly lazy of me, but uh, rather than trawl through all the you know scores of articles we've written so far this year, I'm going to go with one that I wrote yesterday, uh, which is the uh, it's the culmination of a very long story with lots of sort of twists and turns that we followed along the way. It is the announcement uh, from the GPHC that 88% of those sitting the registration exam in March. Uh, passed the assessment, which is great news. Um, it's much higher than the 72% who passed in the the last exam which is in 2019 and uh, let's not forget it's this is after year in which they're put under greater pressure than probably any cohort before them you know they were practicing practicing as pharmacists from august and in many cases as the responsible pharmacist and also they were you know supporting pharmacies at a time of exceptional pressure and public demand so kudos to them and um uh, without wishing to be too hard on the GPHC, I think it's also fair to say this result is in spite of what, you know, could fairly be described as a debacle of just arranging it in the first place. You know, there was delay after delay in setting a date for the exam. There was a U-turn on whether people living overseas would be able to sit it. Lots of people had a nightmare booking their place at the test centres and it all just seemed to drag on. Uh, 
you know, a lot. Uh, the only thing I would say for the GPHC is that the results probably vindicates their insistence on putting the exam on in the first place. You know, a lot of us, I think on this podcast, we, we said this, that the exam ought to be called off and all the provisional pharmacists just allowed onto the register. But a result like that, you know, per- perhaps it vindicate, vindicates the GPHC. Uh, digging into the data, you see some interesting things. You see pass rates are about the same across England, Wales and Scotland. Uh, unfortunately, you see a slightly lower pass rate among those whose training took place only in community pharmacies, but still at 84% pass rate, very commendable, you know, by any standards. Um, and also, uh, yeah, I, th- I thought just the um, the performance this year, um, it may- just makes me, you know, wonder, you know, what, what is this cohort? What, is it, what are their careers going to be like? You know, haven't been, you know, uh, haven't been tested in this way in such difficult circumstances. Are they going to feel more, you know, confident and innovative in their practice as, as they enter their careers? Um, and it's definitely, uh, you know, the the, provi- the year of provisional registration seems to have had a big impact on them because you see there was a handful of people who were sitting the exam for the first time who hadn't done the the provisional registration, and they had a much lower pass rate. You know, seventy five percent versus just under. 90% for, for the uh, provisionally registered. So it obviously has you know, has had a big impact on you know their knowledge, their practice, and be interesting to, to watch their careers going forward. Um, yeah, so that's that, that's my choices. Um, hats off to, to all the, uh, uh, everyone who's, who's, yeah, who's got good news on their exam and, you know, commiserations to anybody who didn't get, didn't get such good news, but um, hopefully they'll, you know, on the road to 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 getting their their careers going yeah congratulations congratulations to to those 88 percent of registrants who who passed uh, the register uh, the registration assessment oh arthur what a what a good point what what kind of pharmacist will they turn out to be i mean to to have gone through this far and passed the registration after the most difficult and challenging of years says a lot for 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 their resilience um, and I think this generation of pharmacists are going to go forward and have absolutely wonderful careers because they've been through, they've been through the mill, they've been through the fire, haven't they? And they've come out the other side. And we all wish them all the very best. And it's exciting time that their, their, their futures are ahead of them. And I think it's uh, it's brilliant news. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Arthur. Rob, you followed this story as well. What 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 did you make of of the news yesterday about our our new pharmacists on the register? I thought I thought it's a it's fabulous news. Um, the interesting point I just make is that it kind of puts into question the point of the exam completely for me. Um, the education reforms proposed some years ago now um, highlighted the um, the beneficial effect of contextualizing learning in practice, and I just wonder whether what we're seeing here is you know the benefit of actually. S- applying your learning in a practical sense and whether that therefore helps people pass a summative assessment in terms of an exam later. Um, There were question marks raised about having an exam at any point when those education reforms were being discussed and I think if we were to see this kind of thing repeated year on year it, it sort of says well do we really need an exam? There's no substitute for experience and maybe um, people are best fitted for registration by um, changing the way that we actually think about the learning process. And I think that's part of what the uh, the three-year uh, foundation programme is meant to, 
support um, and it's going to be interesting to see what the GPHC does on the back of these results. Yeah, that's a, such a good point, Rob, this experiential learning, isn't it? And learning in practice and how that, that how you incorporate that into your your program and your undergraduate program and your registration program. And yes, of course, we're at the start of a, an entirely new era for this now as the new systems and processes coming to place with a five-year course and all the rest of it. So yeah, I very good point. The GPHC will have learned a lot from this and we, we, we'll see what happens going forward. Um, well, Rob, you're, you're on. You might as well come up with your story. Uh, what's your story of the year so far? Uh, so I'm going to pick a story which demonstrates, I think, um, what happens when you add a, a, a lifetime of passion about a particular special interest to a shed load of experience uh, to come up with something which ultimately result, results in something of practical benefit for, for everybody. So it's a story that's appeared um, already in one of um, one of our publications and it's going to appear in, in uh, P3 Pharmacy in May. I've been talking to Jackie Lewis, who won um, an ICP award earlier this year, just after the start of the year, for Pharmacy Innovation um, in the Neil's Award Ceremony. And I've been talking to Jackie about her uh, lifelong interest in cancer. Um, so she uh, started uh, as a pharmacist at the Royal Free, completed a PhD in, in cancer targeting at De Montford, worked in formulation for some years, and then bought a pharmacy 20 years ago with a chemist husband, Martin. And uh, two things really draw my attention to this. She's now translated that interest into a couple of programs, which, as I say, might be of wider applicability to community pharmacies. The first one, Not Normal For You, was funded by a grant from the Health Education Foundation and the MPA. And that was essentially about providing um, providing resources to community pharmacy uh, and training up people in um, in pharmacies to be a support to identify potentially that customers coming through the door might have a problem worthy of further study. And um, that then led, as Jackie started talking about that particular program and the success she'd had working with 10 pharmacies in East Devon in a, in a kind of pilot project, to uh, the offer of some support by uh, Pfizer, who provided a, a grant for educational goods and services to create, to turn that, that sort of, um, that that thinking, that ethos into uh, a program that uh, other pharmacists might be able to use, other pharmacy teams might be able to use. And so just recently, the Let's Communicate Cancer e-learning program, uh, a program of bite-sized videos, animations, quizzes, slideshows, has been launched on the website of the British Oncology Pharmacy Association. Uh, it's free to access, uh, so you, people can have a look at it. As Jackie says, importantly, it's aimed at anybody who is a member of the pharmacy team. She's very keen to highlight the fact that all of her work is dedicated to recognising that that everybody in the team has got a role to play and that when people walk into a pharmacy for the first time, they don't necessarily bump straight into the pharmacist. They're going to interact with somebody else first and therefore it's important to have everybody uh, looking out for those signs and symptoms, the red flags, as she says, that might suggest there's something more uh, more. Uh, sitting behind 
uh, a customer's question or a, or a customer's issue. Um, I think it shows what's possible. I think it shows community pharmacists um, working as clinicians. Um, there's a particular pandemic interest here because, as Jackie says, we know that early diagnosis has been missed during the pandemic. She's had people coming in uh, to see her because they're not going to see their G GP surgeries. She says, uh, asking me to look at their lumps and bumps. And so she absolutely thinks that they're picking up more because of the pandemic. She says the package is very simple. Interested people uh, should get in touch. Um, but then going forward, I mean, the, it's one of these areas that is really hard to cost and to value. You know, it's part of the social capital. It's part of health on the high street. It's part of working as a health hub. It's, again, you know, thinking about things like pharmacy booking the inverse care law. It ticks all of those boxes. So where might you put it in, in, a, in a kind of monetary sense or how might you create a situation in which uh, more pharmacies are encouraged to uh, take up the training, to get involved and to, to think, about, think about how this might support their, their day to day practice and doing, that, doing what, what can be done. So it shows what you can do. I think it deserves a much wider audience. Uh, there's two ways to, to, to follow up. Um, uh, as I say, um, Neil wrote about it in the February issue of uh, ICP. Uh, I've written about it in the May issue of P3 Pharmacy. Um, there are access points there to get in touch with uh, Jackie. But if you want to have a look at the Let's Communicate Cancer program, you can go to the BOPA website, www.bopa.org.uk. Click on the logo, access the courses section. Now, you need to be a member of BOPA to access it, but it is free. And BOPA have a membership category, which is uh, free to enter. I think they use it as an entry point for interested health professionals. But it's a nice sort of circular story for me that Jackie starts off in one area. She, uh, she's she been running a community pharmacy for 20 years. She comes up with uh, some interested programs. Other people get involved, encourages to do more. And it now turns into something which everybody can use. What could be better than that? What could be better than that, indeed? A huge admirer uh, of Jackie Lewis. And she really has put cancer care on the on the map, hasn't she, in terms of how and when and why community pharmacy should be involved. And I think she's done, like you say, Rob, some tremendous work. If you like spreading the message, and, and, and we'll continue to do that uh, as well, I'm sure we'll continue to report on it because it's so important. Interesting, isn't it, that you said, Rob, that she said those red flags that they're picking up um, more during the pandemic, um, which kind of kind of feeds into some of the points that Helena was making earlier on. So, um, yeah, really good. Good to give Jackie a, a mention. And she's done some tremendous work and will continue to do so. So thanks, Rob. Um, that's my turn now. Then. What, what's my choice? Well, I'm going to go back, I think, to the start of the the pharmacy COVID vaccination program. Um, we did a piece in our February issue, I think, or March, um, where we talked to some of the early providers about their experiences. And it it was one of the most uplifting things I think we've carried in the mag for a long time. And it was expertly captured by one of our writers, Victoria Goldman, because here was proof positive of what community pharmacy is capable of, given the chance, you know, some really extremely dedicated pharmacists showing great innovation and adaptability and commitment to, to make a difference. And this was no mean feat, by the way. The logistical challenges of setting up a vaccination service from scratch, capable of delivering a thousand jobs a week, 
were huge. But but these guys did it with an army of volunteers and they did it in marquees, in church halls, in community facilities, and yes, they're, they're pharmacies too. But I think what really stayed with me was how professionally rewarding the pharmacists said they found it. I mean, virtually every one of them considered it the best thing that they'd ever done and the patient reactions were, were, were off the scale and, and quite emotional at times as well. So incredibly rewarding and hats off to all the pharmacists involved in the vaccination programme. Um, and it's still ongoing, of course, and latest data suggests that 340-odd pharmacists are providing these vaccination, COVID vaccination uh, services. So, you know, you've got it done for your patients and you are an absolute credit to the profession. Should the government be capitalising on the strength of the network when it comes to providing locally accessible booster jobs in the future? We've talked about this a lot. Of course, it's a no-brainer. We published some research this week that showed the sector could deliver over 25 million jobs in an annual programme, given the right support and funding. Um, So clearly the sector has a role. But to me, this goes much wider than that, because this story was all about how pharmacy can be responsive to need and capable of implementing change swiftly. Uh, And it was my standout story of the year so far. Helena, did you follow this as well? Um, Yeah, thanks, Richard. I just wanted to add, you mentioned um, the amazing efforts of pharmacists, and I 100% agree um, what has been achieved in in a relatively short period of time is, is really impressive. But um, I just kind of want to give a shout out there to to the rest of the pharmacy team who have been involved as well. And we've been following um, a few different pharmacies where pharmacy technicians um, have had a really big um, involvement in the, the setting up of the vaccination centres within pharmacy and administering the, the vaccinations themselves under the, the national protocol. Um, so, yeah, I, I would agree with you. It's been an incredible effort and it's been. Um, yeah, the whole pharmacy team um, in lots of cases that have been been involved and have kind of thrown themselves into it. It's not something that that pharmacy technicians in particular may have um, been involved in before with um, their not being part of um, PGDs for, for vaccinating, but they've kind of embraced the opportunity and, and have really made a big difference to some of their communities. Yes, absolutely. Well said, Helena. COVID vaccinations, very much a team effort. Well, that brings this spring special edition of the podcast to an end, and I hope you've enjoyed the selection of our favourite stories of the year so far. My thanks to Helena, Monica, Neil, Arthur and Rob. All episodes of the Talking Pharmacy podcast are available on the Pharmacy Magazine website and all your usual download sites. We'll be back next week with more topical pharmacy debate and a sponsor which we're very excited about. But for now, from all of us, thanks very much for listening.